I can't believe so many of you are up this early. The only way I can get up this early is to stay up. At my age, you're going to be up most of the night anyway, so you might as well just stay up. You'll understand that it won't seem nearly as funny when you're 60. I can't believe that Stevie Saint got to be 60. I should, for one thing, I should have died a long time ago from some of the things we've tried. Um, <coughs> you know why I can't die, I mean, yet, is because I'm only halfway done building the playhouse. Apparently you don't have grandchildren, so you don't understand. Listen, when you have granddaughters, you have to have a playhouse. And I have 13 granddaughters. The grandsons are a little slower. We, we aren't making boys that well. We've got three. And, and one of my granddaughters really wants to be a boy. <laughs> Haley Bird, she just cries. I so much... I so much want to be a boy. They have so much more fun. I have a feeling in a few years we're going to have boys, too. I have been investing in tasers, electric fences, big dogs, high-caliber weapons. If you want to come and get friendly with one of my granddaughters, you better be willing to give your life for her. All right. Well, actually... Jerry told me, he just told me that these are not one-hour sessions, these are only 50-minute sessions. So I don't know if we've been starting early or ending late, but um, are you ready to go? Okay. All right. Um, Hey, I want to introduce you to, um, is Jamie here? I've brought a, there he is. See that big guy in the back that looks like me? Not really. That's uh, Jamie. Actually, each one of our kids has an English name, a Spanish name, and a tribal name. He is uh, Jaime, named after my wife's father. Nathaniel, named after my father. Minkai, named after uh, grandfather Minkai. So um, James is in the booth back here. Uh, He's usually... Not looking so gaunt, but he's been uh, doing the Iron Man deal, which I was Iron Man without running, uh, swimming a mile and a half and bicycling 56 miles. And why would anybody do that? Unless they got paid. Unless, of course, you have six daughters and, uh, and a wife and a female puppy. Then you go out and do that just to get keep sanity. <laughs> Jamie and Jessica have six little girls. They had a daughter, and then they had a daughter, and then they had a daughter. They knew four, number four was the charm, a daughter. And then they tried the fifth time. Well, I don't know how many times they tried, but on the fifth. <laughs> and you know what? Number five wasn't a daughter. Twin daughters. I have a picture on my iPhone. I love to watch it just when things seem rough. Um, Lily and Chloe kissing each other. They are so cute. I took Lily once into the bathroom. Now, I don't usually do that part of the uh, granddaughter routine because uh, 
I've gotten out of practice. But I took her in, and she looked in the mirror, and she just got this big smile on her face. She thought it was Chloe. <laughs> they're, they're identical. The only way I can tell them apart is Lily has a little bump on the side of her head because in utero she was head up and Chloe was head down, and then they got it together and... Uh, Otherwise, we can't tell them apart. And they don't know. That, I mean, they answer to both Lily and Chloe, although I think now they're starting to differentiate, aren't they? Unless you have something that they think you've got to treat, then they're both Lily and Chloe. Okay, James is at the, uh, at the iTech booth back here, so if you want to see James and get the true story, just go see him in the back. Um, and just real, real quick, because we are going to run out of time, I just was, you ever have some surprises in life that, that just make you feel good? We were here oh, a while back, and uh, I don't even remember how the conversation started, but you know these Evangicubes? The folks that have the Evangicube were here, and we were talking about uh, medical problems in frontier areas, and uh, you know I don't know how it came up, but I, I remember thinking, you know, what if, if you can use a little cube like this, I don't know how to work them, but you, okay, it, it tells, you know, you keep changing it, it changes pictures, and, um, and so you can tell the, um, you can tell the evangel story, the good news story by using the evangel cube, and I started thinking, you know, what if we use these for medicine? So we, we started working with these folks to make the malaria cube. So this is, uh, now, malaria is not the, um, the flavor of the day. It was AIDS and it was malaria. Now it's human trafficking. But uh, this just came out. Isn't that great? I mean, it shows the ways that you can't get malaria and the ways that you can get it and how you can keep from getting it. And uh, that was just a treat. They just dropped that off to me. And, you know, sometimes you work on something and you kind of forget as you go on to other things. Thank you very much for following through on that, I appreciate getting that. Malaria is a major disease in our world, and it doesn't just kill you, it debilitates you first. I've had uh, Vivax about five or six times, and uh, it's, it's like somebody pulled the plug out. I was flying once just from Shelmetta into where we live in the jungles and had a malaria attack about halfway in. Now, it's only a 35-minute flight, and before I got the last 20 minutes of the flight, I was looking for a place to uh, crash land. I mean, I, I did not think I was going to be able to land the plane. But I had uh, chloroquine, Aralyn, at, uh, at home out in the jungles. But what about the millions of people that don't have that? Um, all right. Let's see. Um, the, the title of our talk this morning, I don't know who came up with it, but it is... Um, Support of indigenous institutions. Now, I usually don't pay attention. I mean, I'm going to go speak someplace, and 16 months ahead of time, they want to know what I'm going to talk about. I don't even know who I'm going to be 16 months ahead. Stuff happens, and you get inspired, so I'm going to go talk about that. So I usually give them some um, general topic, like let God write your story, and you know, and then we can go any place. But somebody thought this up, supported the indigenous institutions. Now, a number of years ago, I was invited by John Piper to be part of a conference that he does every year. And he sent me the title that he wanted me to talk about was um, God's Sovereignty in Suffering and Missions. 
some of you have been in one of the other sessions, that almost sounded like Japanese black gospel choir. I mean, I just couldn't quite make, make sense of it. And I thought, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to talk about when I go there? What would people that have come from all over the country want to hear that would benefit from? And then I started thinking, you know, John Piper's a pretty smart guy. Where did he come up with that title? And uh, I started thinking about it, and then I started thinking God's sovereignty, sovereign, God is king, you know, the world is his, he decides, he calls the shots. We're supposed to be the coming after ones, as the Wabadani say. So I started thinking, yeah, God is sovereign in suffering. And then I started thinking, you know, that, that there is suffering in life, right? There is. Anybody who thinks that they can go through life without suffering are guaranteed that they're going to come out babies on the other end. There is only one sure way to maturity, and that is through suffering. And God uses that. That's part of his pruning process with us. And so I started thinking, God's sovereignty in suffering. You know, if somebody comes to me and they want to share their testimony with me and everything has been smooth their whole life, you know, I can't identify with that. What I want is if I've got a wound in my life, I want to see if they have a scar where I have a wound, and then they have something to tell me. So then I started thinking, God's sovereignty in suffering. Yeah, is God sovereign in suffering? Doesn't it say that Jesus came down here and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross? He was humiliated. He was so that he could understand. It says that God prepared Christ as our Savior through what? Suffering. If Christ hadn't suffered, if he came down here and he was the king for 33 years and then left, we'd feel abandoned. But you know what? He came down here, he took on our form, he subjected himself to the things that, that we're subjected to, and then he rose and said, okay, there is no more sting in death, because it's just the end of the opening exercises. That's what made him such an attractive savior. Um, support of indigenous institutions. You know, I started thinking about that, and the first thing that came to my mind, how many of you know Charlie Vitito? He's the now the head of missions here at... I hope you have a chance to meet uh, Charlie. Charlie, when I first met him, uh, Tina was back here someplace. I had come to speak here at the church... Now, I know some Christian churches in other parts of the world. I asked my mother-in-law when I was headed out the door to come here to, to speak. I said, uh, now tell me a little bit about this church, you know. I mean, not that it matters how many people are there, but, you know, tell me something about some kind of prepared. And she said, well, I think they said that there would be about 20,000 people there this weekend. I said, Perla, Mom, you know, Christian churches are small churches. Maybe they meant 2,000. She said, yeah, it was probably 2,000. I thought... No, no, Christian churches are small churches, 200. And she said, well, I think they said 1,000. So I think it was probably 2,000. I said, I don't know. I've never heard of a Christian church, 2,000. I mean, so I came here, and, um, and I didn't even know that there were two balconies in there. I mean, I didn't discover that until I was done. But um, Tina said uh, I had brought a dental operatory that we had just gotten developed, and it was ready for putting out there, and so I brought one with me, and I was uh, I had showed it to Tina, and uh, Tina saw this man walking down the corridor out here, and, and she said, uh, oh, Steve, Steve, hey, Charlie is a dentist. Show this to Charlie. Now, 
I probably rolled my eyes because I had already showed it to a bunch of dentists. And dentists, they don't want to know anything about that. I mean, they, hey, I mean, they're, they're, dentists are macho and they're saying, I don't need a chair. I just, just give me a good tree. I just need a little shade. And so Charlie, when Tina said, hey, Charlie, come over here. Steve's got a dental chair and I want him to show it to you. And then Charlie rolled his eyes because he had seen dental chairs, you know. It was the uh, lawn chair with with stirrups or with risers, and, and it was, you know, our first one was a, a wooden uh, barber chair, you know, those kind that you could spin around, you could lay back, and you could put it in an airplane and haul it with you if it was a very, very big airplane. So I didn't want to show it to Charlie, and Charlie didn't want to see it, but when I started unfolding it, Charlie said, whoa. And uh, he says that that's the comment that he gets around the world when he goes, because Charlie um, eventually sold his practice, his dental practice, and went into this full-time and then got so involved in missions that he's now the missions director here of uh, Southeast. But Charlie has deeply impacted me because we live in a world where North Americans are known for our overwhelming, lording it over, domination. We are a, a... Creative, but we are a very domineering people. Um, in fact, uh, some of you have heard the story about the elephant and the mouse. Um, there were these two friends. One was an elephant, one was a mouse. And one day the elephant, who was the outgoing, bubbly member of the party, said to the mouse, he said, let's have a party. Let's have a party to celebrate our friendship. And the mouse said, um, okay, if you want to, elephant. And he said, well, what do we, we have? Because, like somebody was saying, I think it was um, Odendahl. Dr. Odendahl was saying the other day, elephants eat a lot. And Mouse thought he was going to have to bring the food for elephant. Elephant was only going to have to bring But elephant said, no, 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 don't worry. I'll bring all the treats and I'll bring the band and we'll just have a great old time. And they did. I mean, they were out dancing and singing and... And it was line dancing, so it's okay. Um, and, and Elephant was into it more than anybody there. And at the end of the party, Elephant was just having such a great time. And he started saying, Mouse, was that the greatest party we ever had or what? Mouse, Mouse, wasn't that a great party? And he said, Mouse, Mouse, uh-oh. He had stepped on the mouse. Now, there was an African church leader that told that story, I believe, first and uh, was telling it to a North American and said, you know what, when we party with you all, we're the mouse and we end up injured or bloodied or dead most of the time. But I would like to show you that it is possible to do the opposite. A number of years ago, I was invited to a uh, conference, an intertribal conference down in Iquitos, Peru, down in the Amazon jungles in Peru. And uh, we had been telling, I had been telling some of these people, you know, the things that you rely, have had to rely on missionaries to do, most of those things you can do if you wanted to. And they said, and if you'd teach us. And I said, yeah, we'll teach you if you'll do it. So we were going to have this conference, and those people got in touch with me and said, okay, Put your money where your mouth is. While we're having this conference, we want you to show us one of the things that you can put us in the driver's seat of. So I called Charlie and I said, Charlie, 
We're going to have a conference down in Iquitos, Peru. Would you come down and train some of the uh, some of the members of the conference? So we'll ask them to bring a couple of other tribal people with them. They brought four tribesmen from four different tribes. They could only communicate in Portuguese or in Spanish. And um, they brought them to be trained. While the conference was going on, they were going to be trained in dentistry. Now, on day four, the conference was going to be done. Now, the initial training in dentistry is pretty intense and it's pretty short, 10 days. And in 10 days, people can go from absolutely no healthcare background at all to using our dental equipment, giving anesthesia, doing extractions, and the beginning of restorations. I mean, it is unbelievable. But this was, the conference was over and all the other delegates were going to leave after day four. But they wanted to see what those guys, because the, the place where we were meeting was this round building with a huge thatched roof and open on the sides because it's hot down in Iquitos. So they had been seeing these guys over there, their, their fellow tribesmen learning how to do dentistry. And, I mean, it was kind of hard for them to concentrate sometimes. They'd hear the yelling and screaming coming from over there. And, no. Um, so they wanted to see a demonstration. Now, I started to tell them, well, guys, this is a 10-day training course, and the first two days are theory or in class. These guys have only had two days of clinic, so I was making all these excuses. They can't do a demonstration on day four. And Charlie came up and said, uh, they can do a demonstration. These guys are, yeah, they're ready to do a demonstration. So they, the four dental trainees, dental techs, came over and just went around, and they picked one of the delegates to the conference who... You didn't have to have good eyesight to see he needed dental care. And they chose him, and then they started to do a demonstration. They gave him anesthesia, uh, did an extraction on his lower jaw, and then did a restoration in his upper jaw on day four. And I could not believe it. So I grabbed my video camera, and I started videotaping it. Now, I want to show you a little bit of that, but then I want to show you the most amazing thing of all. But I'll explain that to you afterwards. We've only got about a minute of this. This is that's Grandfather Minkai's son, the, the husky one. He has not been eating jungle food for a while. That's Charlie undressed. He's in his fourth day of training, no previous health care experience, absolutely whatsoever.
Okay. Now, this is on the um, this is on the uh, iTech a new look at missions. If you'd like a copy, see James. He can give it to you. They do a demonstration here, but that's not the part I want to show you. The part that I want to show you is what's on the screen right now. Charlie Vitado is a trained dentist. He is a licensed dentist in North America, the utopian dental kingdom of the world. And look where Charlie is. These are his students on day four, and they're getting ready to give this fellow anesthesia. Now, if you watch the rest of this video, Charlie only one time moves from where he is right now, and that was when one of the tribal guys went over and got him by the hand and took him over because they had just filled this man's tooth, and he wanted to make sure that they hadn't left any high spots. And Charlie went over and looked and said, and then walked back. This is the antithesis of what we usually do. Charlie Vitado, trained dentist with his students, never once voluntarily left that podium. He had trained these guys. It was their demonstration, and he never once usurped the attention from them. He never once went over and lorded it over them. He didn't even look over their shoulders. This is what I wish missions was like from North America, every place. I've been to India with Charlie. I've been a number of other places. Charlie called me not too many months ago. I guess it was about a year ago. And he had just come back from Ghana, West Africa. And he said, uh, I'm never going back there again. And I thought, Charlie, what happened? Charlie said, Steve... I watched those guys, my students now, he had trained them three times now, and he said, they can not only do the work as well as I can, but they can teach it better than I can. He said, so I'm going other places. Guys, that is what missions is supposed to be all about. If we're going to support indigenous institutions, one of the things that we must have is respect for them. Charlie trained these guys, but God called them. All the guys that are here are pastors. In fact, the vast majority of people that are trained in the IDENT, Indigenous Dental Training Program, are pastors. That was never our intention. We wanted the pastors to pick some, somebody in the church who was capable and faithful so that they could learn to do it. You know why the pastors want to be taught? Because the pastors want to go into Hindu and Muslim communities and they want a door opener. They want credibility. They want relationship. And they don't want somebody else to have it. They want to have it. So they go in. And trust me, now some of you have traveled, if you've been in many parts of the world, um, people will come up and they'll talk to you like this. Because even to have a stranger look in your mouth or to see your mouth open is, is too personal. And so they're going like this. Imagine what barriers are left when they've opened their mouth and let you go into their mouth. I mean, in most places, they could just as well strip naked. In fact, most places, they are anyway. <laughs> At least down our way. You get comfortable before you go to the dentist. Um, it is a barrier breaker. It is a relationship builder. And um, now, long time ago, there was a there was a, a missionary who exemplified this. And every place he went, he would look. It was like life in abundance. 
what they do is he would go and he wouldn't go and start doing what he did. He wouldn't start his program. He would go and find out what their need was. I mean, he went to a party once in a new community and everybody was having a good time. And then they ran out of chicha. Do you know what chicha is? Down in the jungles, it's, it's the drink. And this was smoked chicha. They take the manioc and they had smoked it for days. And then they had made the chicha. And in the middle of the party, they ran out of the chicha. And this guy happened to be there. And so you know what he did? Now, this wasn't a need. This was just a want. They just wanted more chicha because they wanted to finish the party. And so he took, they had some big pots of water. And he went and he turned the water into chicha. So they could finish the, uh, actually it was wine, but we're not Presbyterian, so I just, teach is better. <laughs> Jesus, that's what, that's what he did. When, when the, the one case where I know where he didn't do that was when those four guys lowered the little boy who was a paraplegic down through the roof and in front of Jesus, and Jesus then said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Because of your faith and the faith of those who brought you, your sins are forgiven. But he didn't want his sins forgiven. He wanted to walk. But you know why in that case Jesus didn't deal with his felt need first? It was because there were some religious leaders there and Jesus wanted to bait them. And he said, your sins are forgiven. They said, oh, that's blasphemy. Who are you to forgive sins? And Jesus said, will you tell me which is easier, to forgive sins or to give this boy back his legs? And then he said, son, get up and walk. And you know why the crowds followed Jesus? It wasn't because he was giving them spiritual life. It was because he was meeting their felt needs. And then they desperately wanted to know, who is this guy who cares enough about us to feed us when we're hungry, to heal us when we're sick, to mourn with us when we're in sorrow, to raise the dead? Who is this guy? And then... He gave his gospel to his disciples, not to them, and sent them out to give the gospel to the rest of the people. Excellent. Um, Now, another way that uh, tribal institutions need support is financial support, but not the kind that we usually give. We North Americans love to solve problems with money. Um, Our government just solved a, a crisis in our own country with uh, a trillion dollars of yours and my future money. Uh, in fact, if you've been reading the newspaper, you know that there's a summit in, uh, in Korea just ending, and there is a major financial crisis in our world right now because China, the greatest emerging economy in the world, has been undervaluing their currency so that you and I will buy more and more things from China and will be unable to manufacture things here ourselves. And after about a gazillion years, the United States government even has figured out that that can, if you spend more money and you buy too much stuff from other people, more than you're producing to sell to them, that you're going to be in trouble. Um, And so the U.S. has been objecting to that. And you know what the Chinese and the others said? They said, how about you manipulating your economy? You guys just printed a trillion dollars to stimulate your economy. You don't think that that undervalues your your currency? Um, No, the way that we solve economic problems in other places, because if people want to go, if they need to plant the church and they need to evangelize their world, which is, in fact, the way it should happen, 
The purpose of missions is not to evangelize the world. When Jesus gave his great commission, he gave it to 11 men who represented the church, not missions. And he told them to go out and make disciples, not evangelize the world. The purpose of the church is to evangelize the world. The purpose of missions is to go and establish the church where it doesn't exist so that church can evangelize its world. What we've been doing is we've been going around the world. I mean, this is the truth. Um, we could make it sugar-coated a little bit if we had more time. But we've been going out and we have been duplicating our church in other countries. I can tell you, I was up, I, we, Jenny and I and... Our boys lived in Mali, West Africa for a while. We were way out in the boondocks. We were beyond Timbuktu, which is a city in Mali. We were further than that, and we came into this little town. Now, all the houses in this area, it's like um, um, return of, what is that black racehorse that we all watch from here? Um, you're, you're very young. No, this is Black Fury. Yeah, that's... If you go back in the archives in your library, you might find this. They, they had a race in, in West Africa. All the buildings are flat-roofed. They haven't had rain in like 72 years, right? So, But in this little village, I saw one building. It was about 10 feet wide and about walls 10 feet high. And then it had a steep-pitched roof and, a, uh, and then a little tower, a little spike on one end of it. I mean, it was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. So I went and looked at the sign over the door and said, L'Église uh, Evangelique Bautiste, Malien. <laughs> These people had gone down. Some people had gone down and visited a, uh, a church in the capital city of Bamako, which had been built by, yep, U.S. of A. people. And so it looked like our typical old church, you know, with a steeple on the end. And so when they saw that, they said, oh, if we're... If we want God to bless us, we need to have one of these. So they went out in the middle of the desert, and at great expense, they built a church. The only way that churches can be built, right? Think how horrified they're going to be if they come and find out that we have a round one, and a, a cross on it, but no steeple. We have been going, and we've been duplicating who we are in other places, and by the time they come and find out what we're doing now, we've changed it. Eli Katachunga said the missionaries came and told them, stop using your drums because drums shouldn't be part of a church service. And now, every place he comes to the United States, there's drums everywhere. And we're the guys that told him not. In Korea, I was telling some of you, I went over there, I had to wear a suit and a tie at every meeting. You know why? Because when John Underwood, the Presbyterian missionary who went over there, they were all wearing, you know, these boxer clothes nice and loose. I mean, those things you could turn around in and your clothes are still back where they were. But John Underwood was wearing a suit and a tie and a top hat. Fortunately, they've dropped the top hat. Okay, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. But um, if we're going to go and help people establish their church and evangelize their world, it takes money, doesn't it? And what we like to do is we like to take and give them the money because we want to have a say in how they do it. And uh, so we have strings attached and we have created dependency, which is the most insidious disease that has ever been perpetrated by one society on another is dependency. We've done that everywhere. But it is possible that we could go there and that we could help them develop an economy of their own so that they can support their own stuff. Now, 
I preached that and I practiced that for years and nobody would believe that it really could work. So I finally decided, okay, let's just do it. So we started building airplanes down in the Amazon jungle for the North American market. Now, I need to explain to you that um, these are not jungle planes. These are planes designed for North America with latest avionics. If you're a pilot, uh, glass cockpit um, with uh, certified engines, 200 miles an hour, uh, a range big enough to fly from Florida up to Canada, fully autopiloted. I thought, now, if we could do that and the guys down in the jungles could build that, not only could they make money, but maybe finally North Americans would believe that these guys really are capable maybe of going and sharing the gospel with somebody door-to-door without having a North American teenager along with them. Maybe. Um, but that's kind of a stretch. I mean, my dad took a plane from North America and went down there to the jungles that would fly about 100 miles an hour. Now, we're talking about going back down to that same community and building planes that will go 200 miles an hour and have instruments that my dad never even dreamed of and a full three-axis autopilot, which means you take off and you push the button and you tell Oscar where you want to go and how high you want to go. And when you start getting there, he comes down and he does everything but land it for you. Oscar's a, a very light passenger. He weighs about two and a half pounds and he flies the plane better than I do. Not as fun as I do, but better than I do. And, uh, oh, James and I flew up in one out here. And fuel prices are high out here, so we just filled up in Florida and uh, came up here the uh, Thursday. took us four hours door-to-door, and we're going to go back and get in that little plane and fly back to Florida without buying Kentucky gas. Um, But I thought you might want to see that this can work. This is what is called business as ministry. Uh, And this particular little piece was on the equivalent of 60 minutes down in Ecuador. The only positive thing that I've ever heard about missions in Ecuadorian secular television. That was Gallo. Gallo is head of this. And two of the young men that are building these planes down there are grandsons of the men that killed my father. That's Muipa. If you've watched End of the Spear, remember Muipa that was killing everybody? He's from the same clan. He was named after that guy. He's more gentle. That's good. Economic support for frontier institutions, if we don't give them an economy, we will have to support it. And if we support it, it's going to end up looking like we think it should look. Uh, that's another form of support. And then there is um, there's another um, kind of support, and that's cultural support. Now, some of you were here and remember um, when Eli Catachunga came with me, a friend from the Brazilian jungles. He's a Ticuna tribesman and uh, very eloquent. And he spoke in a plenary address here. And uh, one of the things that, that Eli shares as we travel around, he said, you know, our tribe, the Ticuna tribe, which is a big tribe in northwestern Brazil, he said, we were becoming a tribe of drunks. 
Men were beating their wives, they were abusing their children, and he said, we realized that we needed something. And he said, my father said, I'm going to find a solution so that there will be a future for the Tikuna tribes, uh, tribes people. And he started looking around, and then he found a, uh, an Assemblies of God missionary who shared the gospel with him, and he thought, this is the answer. And then Presbyterian missionaries came down, and then Baptist missionaries came down, and he thought, you know, there's got to be something to this, otherwise these people wouldn't come so far to share it. And so he started becoming acquainted with the gospel. And then Elie says, but then one day the Baptist missionary said, oh, you don't want to associate with the assemblies. Those people dance and shout. Shouldn't do that. And he said, then the assemblies people said, why are you guys hanging out with the Baptists? They don't even know how to worship God. So he said, so my father went to the Presbyterian missionary and he said, we need the gospel, but we want to have our own church. And the Presbyterian ministry said, our missionary said, well, now that's strange. How could you have your own church? You don't even know our rules and our doctrines. And so he said, so, then the missionary, a missionary came and he said, uh, now there's some things that you need to change. You're trying to worship God, but you still beat your drums. And he said, you beat your drums to call the evil spirits. Must not do that. So he said, so we gave up our drums. And then he said, another missionary came and said, uh, wait a minute, you should not do your tribal dances. Now we're not talking ballroom, salsa, we're talking um, the men, you know, at least down where I come from, the men gallop and the women just hold hands and walk back and forth saying, boy, if we could just find some men that could go out and hunt, we wouldn't be hungry all the time. You know, it's, That's pretty universal. And he said, then a missionary came and said, um, you know what, you shouldn't sing your songs anymore because your songs, you praise yourselves, but our songs should only praise God. So he said, then a missionary came and said, come on, let's go worship God together. And he said, we had no way to worship left. They'd taken our drums, they'd taken our dance, and they'd taken our songs. He said, but the missionary said, oh, don't worry, I'm going to translate my songs into your language. And he said, but when he showed us those, it was embarrassing. It broke all of our music rules in our tribe, and so we couldn't sing those songs. And he said, uh, you know what, for 70 years... We tried to understand the gospel in North American culture. He said it took us 70 years to learn what the missionary didn't understand. And if, if you were here, there was a pitcher of water up on the podium out in the sanctuary. And he took the pitcher of water and he said, what we didn't understand and what the missionary didn't understand is that the gospel is like pure water. It's not the embassy. It's not the container. He said, they brought us the gospel in a North American container, and it was uncomfortable for us. We weren't used to holding that kind of embassy. He said, you know what we finally learned? He said, just a couple of years ago, we realized, no, the gospel is the water, and now we put it in our embassy. And then he turned around and he took this big mallet and he beat this gigantic drum that was on the podium because the special music down there was being uh, done by a, an Apache uh, chief and his son. North American music, they thought it would be great to have a Native American come down there, and the only instrument they brought down was this giganto drum. And Elise started to beat that drum, and he said, you know what? 
Now we're beating our tikkuna drums again, but now we're beating them to call God's Holy Spirit. And then he said, and now we're singing our dance, we're doing our dances again, but we're doing our dances to appease God's Holy Spirit. And he said, and we're singing our songs again, but we've put new lyrics to them, and we're worshiping God with them. And then he said, I want all of you people in the audience, there were, there were several thousand tribes people there from 65 tribes in the Amazon and very few white faces because they, it was their tribal conference. And he said, I want all of you people who are tikkuna to stand up. And they all stood up. And he said, now listen to me, you tikkuna. When you go to share God's gospel, Christ's gospel with other people, don't you try to make them tikkuna. God has not called us to make people like us. He has called us to make people like His Son. I want to play just a little piece of a little trailer for the missions dilemma. This is so hard to communicate, and it's so easy for people to say, well, Steve saying that's your opinion. So I went and I interviewed people from around the world, and I asked them this question, if you could give us, the North American Church, one piece of advice that would help us do missions more effectively, more efficiently, and more sensitively in your part of the world, what would you like to tell us? And then we made a seven-part video series uh, of this um, that we have available. We actually filmed it in front of a live audience, took the, uh, took the interviews and played them in front of a live audience right here in this building and made it into a video series with a workbook. And then we use, uh, we refer to um, seven parts. It's uh, imagine their point of view. The gospel is culture. Think family. All parts need all parts. Make disciples and make disciples. No go show and blow and walking God's trail together with a, uh, with a workbook to go along with it. And it refers. And you know what the cool thing is? They just all happen to come out almost the same color. Okay, we're just going to play. You don't know how hard it is to get a video cover and books that have stripes that look the same. And it was about Halloween when they came out, so we chose orange. I'm just going to show you a minute of this, but uh, if you want to know what I've learned about missions over a period of... Uh, you would want to reevaluate how you do missions to others. I have no positive experiences of missionaries so many people have come to fix us that, oh Lord, please don't bring another, you know, person to fix us. We've been fixed so many times we're a real mess now. We need to have to learn to walk on our own feet. Otherwise, we become like Mama, 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 depending always on the Americans. We have to learn to walk on our own. So continuing to work like... This sweet lady, I think you know. Some of you have met Glenn. He's here. 
Glenn's here. If you'd like to know what our brothers and sisters around the world would like you to know, I would suggest that you pick up, uh, it comes in a three-pack, there's lots of um, um, workbooks, but uh, it's, it's intended for a home Bible study, it's intended for a, um, a Sunday school class, and uh, this is not my perception, this is the word from our brothers and sisters around the world to you. Uh, it's something that took us a long time to produce. If I, if I were going to recommend one way for you to get your church or your group or your family reoriented to the scriptural perspective on missions, I would suggest Missions Dilemma. And in good North American tradition, how many of you are law-abiding citizens? Okay, about a third of you. I just wanted to see if you're still with me. Um, when we were making this, Diane Becker, the, the lady whose voice you heard at the end, uh, who just comes and helps us with video work from time to time. And, oh, by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you our, our video production department at, uh, at iTech is missing one person right now. And that's how big our video department was. Now, we have other ones of us who do cameras and stuff when we need to. But if anybody is here... Um, who does video editing, would like to do something that would impact missions, we have a big opening. We'll make it your size, whatever. But uh, I did have one candidate, one young lady who uh, came, but then there was this guy following her. And I've watched her. I've seen her about four times, and the same guy is right there. I don't think she's going to last. We might get her for a year. But if you'd be interested... um, Please see Jamie or see me afterwards. We really could use some help. But um, Diane, who's, who does help for us, but she does videos around the world, she called me one day when she was waiting for me to write some of the rest of the script for uh, Mission's Dilemma. And she said, uh, so Steve, uh, why is it you keep telling me you don't have time to finish the script? 
if you have time to make another video, why don't you have time to do the script? And I said, Diane, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, I know. I know. I just got a new catalog from, who are, who are these people? Um, vision Video. She said, I just got the latest Vision Video catalog, and I saw your new video. I said, Dan, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, okay, I just wanted you to know, if, if it's not going to be a primary commitment of yours, it's not going to be a primary commitment of mine. And she hung up the telephone, and I, I had no clue what she was talking about. And then about a week later, an attorney friend from, um, from Ocala called me and said, hey, Steve, we watched your video last night. And I said, oh, end of the spear? And he said, no, no. And I said, oh, beyond the gates of splendor. He said, no, no, it was called something like Steve Saint the Jungle Missionary. I said, there is no such video. And he said, oh, yeah, there is. We watched it last night. And he said, and my teenage daughters liked it. I said, Randy, there is no such video. And he said, yeah. I said, where'd you get it? He said, Netflix. <laughs> so the next time Diane called, I said, Diane... An attorney friend of mine said that he watched a video recently called Steve Saint the Jungle Missionary. And that's a little arrogant, isn't it? Except I had nothing to do with it. And I said, I don't... She said, uh, now, come on. Nobody makes a video and takes, you know, intellectual property and just makes a video without authorization. I said, Dan, I'm telling you, I know nothing about this video. I've never seen it. I have no clue what it is. It's available apparently, on uh, Vision Video's catalog and, and Netflix. So Diane ordered a couple, and uh, she looked at it, and she said, you know, it's a talking head, but they've used footage from the movie, from the documentary, from the original Through Gates of Splendor, and your personal intellectual property, your dad's pictures and video, and I just was elated to think that piracy is still alive and well in North America. <laughs> Now, she said that she would stop them from distributing this, and I thought, yeah, one day I'm going to stand before God, and God's going to say, hey, listen, I had to even break some rules with Vision Video to get them to produce this thing, and then you put a stop to it? What were you thinking? So I said, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's blackmail them. So Diane said, okay, listen, iTech wants a couple hundred of these videos. And so... Uh, they said, how about 100? We said, how would you like to go out of business? So they sent us some of these videos. And if you would like to go get a copy of the uh, Missions Dilemma, Jamie is going to give you one of these totally pirated, unauthorized <laughs> videos free of charge. But if they come and arrest you, we are not going to stand between you and the law. Now, how embarrassing would that be if somebody took your name and put it, Steve Saint, not a jungle missionary, but the jungle missionary? I mean, it's true, but I wouldn't have said that myself, and I certainly wouldn't have put it on the video. Okay. You know what? I think we might... Oh, we have to end now? I thought we had 12 minutes left. Oh, we're supposed to... Oh, it's 50 minutes from 8 o'clock to... And somebody else is coming in here. Okay, guys, hang on, because there's one other thing that I want to do you. If you read the book, I mean, that's where we're supposed to get this stuff. 
This book has stuff even about missions in it. Really, it does. And about the church and how the church is going to function. Now, I'd like to read you a verse from the end of the first chapter in Second uh, Corinthians, where Paul is being apparently has been chastised by the Corinthians, his, his spiritual children, and he apparently told them that he was going to come back and visit them, and then he didn't do it, and they're ticked. And so they apparently have written him, we don't have a copy of that, but his response, we can tell that they're upset. And so Paul says, listen guys, I call God as the witness to my soul that it was to spare you that I didn't come back to Corinth, so that I wouldn't lord it over your faith, but so that your faith would become strong and steady. Paul is writing to his spiritual children and he's saying, guys... I intended to come back to Corinth, but I didn't do it. But it's because I, it's not because I don't keep my word. It's because I don't want to dominate your faith. I want your faith to become strong and steady. And remember, these are the people that he wrote to after he had left them and said, You guys, when I was there with you, I couldn't give you spiritual meat. I gave you spiritual milk because you were just babies. I'm out in the middle of the jungles trying to figure out what can I do for the fledgling Waurani, well, for the Waurani church that discipled me as a little boy. I was in Korea and I was speaking to about 6,000 people and I shared with them how the Waurani, two of the men who killed my dad, baptized me. And the pastor stood up and stopped the whole service, walked up to the platform. Now, Korea, formality and saving face is very important. And he took the interpreter and he marched him off the stage and fired him in front of everybody. I had no clue what was going on. Got another interpreter and brought him up. So I started where I'd been and I told how these men in the Waodani tribe, who were my elders in the faith, baptized me and the interpreter wouldn't interpret it. Because the pastor, when the interpreter before had said that they had baptized me, he knew that a mistake had been made because I was white and they were Indian, so I had to have baptized them. So he fired the interpreter, and the new interpreter wasn't going to have the same thing happen to him, so he just wasn't going to interpret. And finally, somebody stood up in the audience and said, Pastor, you were wrong, and the interpreter was right. And then sat down real quick. (laughs) Because in Korea, it's God, the senior pastor, and then the rest of us. (laughs) No. Those men were my elders in the faith, and I'm sitting down in the jungles at night trying to figure out, What happened to the Waodani church? Why is it the elders don't even know that they're elders anymore? They don't function anymore. You know why it was? It was because well-meaning people from the outside world kept coming in and lording it over them and doing the job of elders amongst the Waodani, people who didn't know the culture, didn't know the language, and they undermined that, that church that had already reached out. One of my friends growing up, when I left to come to college to have a four-year vacation, he went down to reach the family that he had been kidnapped from (coughs) in a spearing raid when he was a little boy to share the gospel with him. And when he got down there, he called by two-way radio back to Tijuana, where my Aunt Rachel was, and said, I think they're going to spear me. And the Christians there said, Tonya, tonight when everybody's asleep... (coughs) You flee over to Fish River, and we'll get Star, Aunt Rachel, to send the Dainim helicopter over to get you so that you, you will still live. And Tonya, a teenage, a teenage boy growing up under the discipleship of these Waodani elders, said, God sent me here. 
God sending me here, speaking to him tonight, if he sees it well, I'll flee. But if he sees it well, I'll stay. Called back the next day and told him, God told me to stay. And that was the last thing we ever heard from Tonya. They speared him. That's the kind of powerful church that I grew up in as a child. In my mid-40s, in my mid-teens. In my mid-40s, I'm back there and the church isn't functioning anymore. And you know what it was? It was this very problem that Paul knew about way back then and was dealing with. Over in uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ, Jesus, as Lord. We aren't supposed to go be the Lord. We're supposed to go preach Jesus as Lord. Now, if you look real fast, Jerry, I'm, I'm trying. Um, in, in 1 Peter 5, it's giving the qualifications of eldership and deacons. And it says this. It says, uh, 1 Peter 5, starting with verse 2, it says, Shepherd the flock. You guys, shepherd the flock of God amongst you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor as lording it over them. If we lord it over other believers, especially in their territory, then that is a disqualification of leadership. And if you go back and uh, look, this one I just happened to run by. I wasn't looking for these things. It's all over there. Lording it over other people's faith so that we debilitate their faith is not only not good missions, it is directly contrary to God's word. He called us to go make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Some of you were here last year and we did a, an experiment. We did discipleship the way we do it. Here, you know, a professional going and every second we had the evangelist pick somebody and they would stand up because that was evangelism. And over here, every five or ten seconds, we'd have somebody share the gospel and disciple them. And then those two would each disciple somebody. And you know what? Over here, it was just sweeping through the room. It was down to about here, when over here it was just barely through the first row. But you know how it ended up? This one was about to here, when this side was totally evangelized. Because that's the way Jesus taught us to do it. A multiplication strategy. But if you look back in Ezekiel 34, and then we're done. Back here, this is a diatribe against the shepherds of Israel. And it says, Woe to you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't shepherds feed the flock? Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. And so then God's word says, and so I will no longer allow you to be shepherds of my flock because the shepherds are supposed to take care of the flock first. And I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, let's start doing that because the United States is not only not the center of missions today that it was, we are now the third or fourth largest missionary receiving country in the world. People in other countries are sending missionaries here. You know why? Because while we're going out to reach the ends of the earth, we are not reaching into our own inner cities. That's why we at iTech, little iTech, but we're going to do our little thing. We are starting Life University, developing programs so that churches that want to reach their own ends of the earth can do that, and then together we can go out and reach the ends of the earth everywhere. God has a plan. He gave us the gospel, he gave us his son, 
And then he said, now you go, therefore, and make disciples. I appreciate you folks coming to Global Medical Health Conference because this is a place where we gather to share ideas. Please, take that word and do what it says. Listen and obey. God bless you.